0: You're listening to Beyond the Ordinary, a show about the companies, founders, and ideas that are shaping the future of health, science,
1: and financial technology. Here's your host, Tommy Martin. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Beyond the Ordinary. We are so glad you're here with us today. We have a special guest, my new friend, Tom Morgan. We met at a place called Capital Camp, which is kind of like a food and wine festival for investment nerds but we hit it off and have had just an awesome time ever since and as i've gotten to know tom his story is just so compelling i'm excited to bring it to you today the best way i can describe him he is a curiosity sherpa for billionaires if you don't know what i mean by sherpa these are the people who lead you up the side of mount everest They take you from the bottom. They make sure you're going the right direction. They make sure you have the supplies you need. They make sure you ask the right questions, that you check all the right things. His job is to do that as it relates to curiosity for billionaires. He is the Sherpa in that space. He's just interested in absolutely everything. And Tom, we're just so thankful that you're here with us today.
0: Thanks so much for having me. It was a real delight meeting you and I'm uh, I'm really excited we can chat today.
1: So, Tom, you have a very unusual job and that's come as a result of a very unusual career path. So take us back to how you became this Sherpa for billionaires. Sure. I mean, I think my life has been very conventional
0: until it wasn't, which wasn't really my choice. I, uh, I graduated from college. I went to a prestigious high school and a prestigious college and got a great degree and floundered around a bit. After college, getting bounced in and out of jobs and not really knowing what I wanted to do with myself. And then kind of accidentally ended up working on Wall Street, first in London and then in New York as a sort of a traditional stockbroker. I think for a decade, it was phenomenal, phenomenal fun. You know, the idea of people being unfulfilled in finance jobs, it wasn't what I lived. It was a hard job, but it was limitlessly intellectually stimulating. And, and the caliber of people in finance intellectually, it's usually very, very high. So I lived a kind of very stimulating existence and I'd been very fortunate to do a bunch of incredibly silly jobs before Wall Street. So I understood like how the compensation didn't really make any sense and how lucky I was to be there. But slowly over sort of a 15, 16 year period, my interests in life started to diverge with the job itself. And I think the nature of the job changed. You know, in the early 2000s, just the information flow was radically different to how it is today and it's easy to forget that you know like pre 2012 mobile wasn't really as much of a thing and pre iphone it really wasn't much of a thing at all and you know my old boss used to talk about how they would run earnings releases around the city like physically so people got them faster and i never experienced anything like that but there was this idea where you know i would get let's say 100 to 150 research reports every morning and had to go through them one by one to work out which was most insightful. And that was a very good pattern recognition for learning what people with no time and lots of money wanted to hear and how to communicate it to them, hopefully very, very succinctly and then what i did for a number of years was write a summary email that went out to all of our clients on wall street saying that the things that were most important that we'd published that week and over time more and more of my personality went into it and so far so conventional and i was kind of you know moderately successful and like moderately wealthy and sort of like very you know traditional career path and then you know due to a series of quite strange and unexpected and at times pitiful events i ended up getting zeroed out And I left my job in 2017 and assumed that I would be able to pivot away from finance very easily because of how relentlessly successful and amazing I was and discovered that that wasn't the case at all and that I wasn't special in terms of the competitiveness of the job market, particularly somewhere like Manhattan. And I made a series of catastrophic personal and professional mistakes. I guess to summarize the primary mistake that I made, it was... To reject my finance background and try and do something meaningful with my life. So, a hospice worker, a social worker, a Jungian analyst, a uh, recruiter at one point to try and help people get jobs. I tried all these different jobs out, but I wasn't really interested in any of them. But I was trying to force myself into them because I felt that for my second act of life, it was time
1: to give back. So, you had this like inner sense of like what I was doing previously wasn't as noble, maybe? Yeah. And now I need to be doing something that's more noble?
0: Yeah. And well, I interpreted, I think only partially correctly, the drying up of my interest in traditional finance for the fact that I needed to leave finance. And there was nothing that, that sort of all of my experience in finance was somehow redundant and useless because finance was, you know, fundamentally pointless, something that I no longer believe. But it was like, you know, if you read all these books about life and meaning and the second mountain or whatever it is, right? It's always like, well, the second half of life is when you move into a period of service. And so for me, that was a very self-sabotaging rejection of anything that I was actually good at. And that was a very bad idea and a very bad place to be.
1: So you almost had it locked in mentally that anything in finance has to be as kind of unattached to giving back to others as the role that you previously had. There wasn't this recognition of, gosh, maybe there's a way I can actually give back and have this second chapter be about service and somehow do that in the financial sector.
0: Precisely. And actually, it was much worse than that in the sense of, as is kind of obvious in retrospect, the worst thing you can do in life when you're in an exploratory phase is sort of over-determine the direction you're going in. And the thing that I said was, is that whatever I do next has to be meaningful. And that's kind of an impossible goal right? Like meaning is a flow, meaning is something that happens to you in the process of something else. But I kept going after all these different areas and none of them were either anything I was interested in or actually particularly meaningful. And so I kind of boxed myself into a bit of a maze, a bit of a labyrinth where I I couldn't get myself out. And, you know, eventually I, I bottomed out in February before the pandemic, kind of, you know, gave up, which I think was a very, very important, significant moment for a lot of different reasons.
1: And when you say that you bottomed out, you gave up, for different people, that actually manifests in different ways. What are you willing to share about what that meant for you?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm very candid about it. I was completely and utterly and depressed. I had no individual sense of agency. You know, I wasn't <laughs> suicidal. I just simply had no desire to live which is not quite the same thing. And maybe unfortunately people know what the difference is, Whereas it wasn't, it wasn't ideation. I wasn't waking up every day and thinking, you know, how can I kill myself? I was waking up every day and thinking, I just don't really have the energy to live anymore. The internal dissonance of trying to drive myself in a direction that wasn't working. And I think a significant part of myself saying, you know, dude, just let go and let this all unfold. That constant battle was so draining that I couldn't do anything else, including love my children or you know my wife. I just had this constant internal raging monologue that made me incapable of really thinking about anything else.
1: You know, so this is February, right before the pandemic. And so, you know, we're a month or two months, depending on where you lived, out from this thing kind of all now coming down at a whole different level.
0: I had the best pandemic ever. It was almost perverse, is that I got a job working from home, which, given that I went from like this sort of unusually like confident English public school boy to someone that could barely complete a sentence, you know, no self-esteem whatsoever, and work from home was the single best thing that could ever have happened to me. And I ended up in a role back in finance where I had to pitch, you know 300 times give or take, and the first 10 were catastrophically bad. But rather than me being in a conference room where people would have been able to see the sweat patches, I was sitting in my bedroom in a fundamentally safe space. And so getting a job that I was very relaxed in, that I had some sort of competency in, and I could slowly rebuild my confidence and slowly, slowly rebuild my psyche actually ended up being very, very positive. But to be honest, it wasn't a job that grabbed my attention. But what it did do was give me the time and freedom To pursue what I am interested in, which is a very weird mix of kind of existential philosophy and spirituality with traditional finance and business. I do believe the two can be reconciled. And I ended up writing a piece, kind of bringing the two of them together. And my current employers, you know, Tom Pence at the KCP Group, he read it. And and him and his colleague, Jamie Knoll, they were like, you know what, dude, just come and do this for us. So it was this unbelievably serendipitous outcome where they they saw this very weird thing that probably only I could do but only I would want to do and then they offered me a job doing it and you know I can't speak for them but the 18 months since has been definitely the best 18 months of my life
1: and you've created such an incredible platform i think what i appreciate so much about what you're doing tom is you're helping people understand that being in finance doesn't mean you can't also be giving back to society that you don't have to be a leech when you're in finance, that you can actually get out there and make a meaningful difference in people's lives. It's just a function of how do you treat your role as someone supporting them. And that's why I love your analogy of a Sherpa, because you can't be someone's Sherpa and just be a leech sucking from them. (laughs) that doesn't work. It doesn't work. And so I want to come back to that. I want to dive right in head first on your role as a Sherp. And I want to talk about some of the things that you're taking out through the financial airwaves that are just so different than the normal, you know, market report you get from everybody in the world. But before I do that, I do want to ask. So, you know, through this time, you know, your wife had this front row seat to watch you go from this, you know, confident, person to this person, as you said, that you know, couldn't even babble a sentence. And what was her role in all of that? And how did that play out? And was there an intersection of how you were able to begin to snap out of it?
0: Yeah. I mean, the good news was is that you know, we had seven good years of marriage before this all happened. But for better or for worse, the mental health establishment in Manhattan was Basically, like he's not really going to get better. Right. I was kind of very dead eyed, you know, highly medicated, only vaguely functional. And, you know, my wife always says, you know, the thing that kept her going was the idea that I would get back to a portion of the person I was before. She'd very much given up on the idea that I could have returned to the person I was before at all, but there would be some percentage of me that would return. And whilst I'm certainly not perfect now, I would say that, you know, I'm, I'm as close back to normal as I ever was. In fact, I think that I'm so happy professionally, is probably makes me a better husband, although I would probably define myself as still a six and a half out of 10 husband. But that faith, I think, kept her going. But beyond that, you know, she she comes from an immigrant family of Portuguese immigrants. And I think their value system treats marriage a little differently than maybe... The UK or the US does something that's more of a more of a commitment, and you know you you've made that commitment and you're going to stick by it. And I think that strong moral compass in her helped us stand by me when there was no hope.
1: Wow, that's incredible, incredible! And our listeners can't see it, but I can see right behind you. There's four pictures on the wall, and it's you and her, and just this you know incredible story. And your episode will actually be following on the heels of our episode with John and Ash Marsh and they really talk about taking a marriage that was completely hopeless completely hopeless hopefully our listeners have heard their story and and turning it around and it's one thing I do want to continue to promote on our show Tom that I really believe that even the most strained marriages absolutely have hope if people want to have that hope so thank you for being willing to share that and go a little deeper into your personal world and What an incredible wife to stick through that. And I always believe to get to the best possible marriages, you have to go through some really tough times. And one of the things I did at one point in my life is interviewed these older couples that had these marriages that I look at at this point and say, oh my goodness, if we could have that when we're in our seventies or eighties, we'd be thrilled. And every single one of them, 100% of the ones I sat down with had gone through some very, very challenging times. Brought so much hope to realize like that diamond is refined through that pressure. So moving into this role with KCP, and you know, you get this call, hey, come do what you're doing, come do it for us. And it's this completely different way of communicating about the financial world. What was it that? really intrigued you so much about bringing together this spirituality with finance i think if
0: if the listeners of the show come away with any single idea it's probably the idea that's been most influential in my life which maybe sounds trite but i think it's sort of limitlessly interesting which is if you pursue topics that are interesting to you and hold your attention you will evolve positively. And it's something that it's very strangely like AI research is starting to to latch onto and chaos theory is starting to latch onto. And the Chinese Taoists realized it like two and a half thousand years ago. And what's interesting is that my own life kind of bore this out, right? Is that when I got lost, what you should do when you get lost is focus on what's grabbing your attention because for a bunch of mystical and fantastic reasons, I believe that's your best guide as to your future growth. But instead, what I did was, is I was very goal oriented and be like, all right, what specific goal do I need to achieve right now in order to be safe, in order to be secure, in order to safeguard my family's income or whatever it is, right? So I did what I think is normal, but is also probably the worst thing you can do in those circumstances. And... What I've noticed since I've been doing this job is that, you know, we have a client base that's very, very, very far up Maslow's hierarchy. You know, their food and shelter are not on their list of concerns. And as a result, you know, we do communicate with them a lot on you know their investments and what we're thinking about the world of investing And, you know, we have an excellent group of investors in the firm. It's just that that's not something I'm particularly good at. Or, you know, when you work on Wall Street for a very long time, you realize that the bar for, for truly insightful alpha generative financial content is impossibly high. And if you're just giving people commoditized, here's our view on inflation, you're probably just wasting their time. And so I realized that if I could find topics that were really, really passionately interesting to me and would help people with these kind of life transitions, which a lot of us now find ourselves in, I would probably be adding a lot of value to people, particularly guys who'd made a huge amount of wealth and then were looking for their next gig or people that were looking for ways to spend their time. Because I think that, you you said something earlier, where a lot of people look at finance and meaning and they're like, all right, I've made a lot of money. So I guess the way for me to give back is to literally give back. And give the money away. Whereas, like, I have a slightly weirder, more mystical definition. Whereas, I think the most important thing any individual can do is sort of become uniquely themselves, that they settle into a place in their life where they're very comfortable in sort of a a semi creative role, doing what they want to be doing. And the cascading positive impact of someone who's working from that place is very, very hard to quantify. But you can just see it, right? It makes for happy families and it makes for happy people around them. So I'm, I'm not saying don't give money to charity, right? I'm not saying that at all. Sure. But I'm saying if you can bring that out of people or allow people to find what they're interested in through being this sort of curiosity sherper, there aren't many things that I want to do more.
1: Makes total sense. And Tom, this is a little bit cliche, but it's the way that I've at least thought about it is this concept of helping someone move from success, kind of this definition of, I think the world's a little fluid in this, but this designation of success moving to significance. And one of my mentors said it really well, you know, we sold our business And we're trying to decide, you know, what's our next chapter look like? And I I loved how he asked me, he said, Tommy, how can you get the biggest ROI on your time now? And I like how you're taking it to a different level of like, well, how do I accomplish that? You know, it's one thing to just ask that question, but what you're saying is take it to the next level. How do you get the biggest ROI on your time? It's, you know, becoming the best that you uniquely have to offer to the world. I mean, that's deep. Well, yeah, a lot of these things do sound like cliches, but often they're
0: cliches because they're true, right? And the way I think about it is everything's a flow, right? Everything is always in motion. Just a question of your perspective, whether a mountain's rising or falling, right? Everything is always in motion. So the idea that evolution or whatever force we're driven by would reward us for a static destination is ludicrous, right? So the idea that evolution be like, ah, you just made your five mil, cool, sit back and kick up, You'll be fine. It's just a ludicrous idea, but it's how we structure our lives. So we structure our lives around goals. Yet the only thing that we should be aspiring to is flows, right? And what I mean by that is, like, very specifically to your point about where you're spending your attention, right? If you accept this idea that that kind of Carl Jung first developed, which is that like we're this four dimensional self, and if you get very good at paying attention, you know, following your bliss, as it were. It will pull you into the future in this very, very positive way. So, like, what's the inverse of that? It's you wasting your time on things that don't matter, right? It's you giving your attention to things that don't matter. And I heard this wonderful expression the other day, which is, "Love is correctly proportioned attention," right? And you just think about, like, if you had a love budget and or attention budget of like a hundred points a day, how many of those points are you giving to your kids? Right. And that's an obvious point. Right. But what isn't obvious, I think, is that paying attention to your children changes you. Right. And paying attention to topics that really stimulate you changes you. It pulls you into that flow. Right. Rather than pulling you into a destination. And I think we're starting to understand that as a culture, but we're not necessarily allocating our attention wisely. And that's why, you know, the title of the articles I write are all prefaced the attention span. I was dealing with a group of people that had very, very limited attention span, very, very limited time budgets. And as a result, you have to be enormously respectful of people's time, but also make sure that they're focusing on things that are relatively perennial. If we're focusing on news of the day, celebrity gossip, whatever it is, right? Like it's so ephemeral that it will be forgotten tomorrow, but also it will have no impact on you as a
1: person. 100%. You know, Tom, as you were describing that, thinking of attention as this currency, you know, and a lot of times people have started to talk about, oh, time, time is the great equalizer. It's the only currency we all share equally, but a whole different level of that is attention because it's maximizing that time in a very intentional way. And as you were describing all this, I was going back to one of the worst moments of my life, but yet one of the most important moments of my life is my wife sitting down with me and saying these words. Oh man, they still hurt today, but they were so necessary. So I'm so glad she did it. She said, the kids and I feel like we're getting your leftovers in life. And exactly what she was saying is what you're talking about, that, you know, they were getting the least of my attention. Everything else was more important. And, you know, I would get up from dinner every time we were having dinner together because I'd see a phone call coming in. And actually, Tom, I'll take you to one of our core values at one of the companies. I sit on their board today, but I was a founder. One of our core values and missions in that company was to help clients achieve wealth that matters. And it was all about this concept of, you know, we always said if somebody ended up with millions upon millions of dollars or a billion dollars or billions of dollars, and they had no one to share it with, then who cares? And what that really drove, it came from this imagery. And it was this person who's at their child's talent contest at their school But they're not in the auditorium where the talent contest is happening. They're out in the hall behind the auditorium, peeking in the window to see that moment when their child's going to go on stage. And they're out in the hall because they're on the phone with a client or a customer or whoever it may be. And they keep peeking to see, is my kid up yet? And then they finally peek and they realize, oh no, my kid's halfway through their portion of the talent show. And that individual was me. Mm. That had been me at event after event. You know, I'm at the soccer field, but I'm behind the bleachers because I'm on the phone and I'll peek my head around, watch them clap. And to them, yeah, dad was there, but I wasn't there. Mm. Absolutely wasn't there. And so I had to go through some of this realization, but my big wake up call was my wife sitting down with me saying, Hey, we feel like we're getting your leftovers. And she was right. They were getting my leftovers. I just needed that wake-up call. And it changed everything, changed absolutely everything for me and ultimately became part of our mission of a business we were building to say, let's help other highly, highly successful people realize that they don't have to do that. So I'm so thankful that you're out there doing it. Enough of my sidebar. Let's
0: invert that for a second. I think that the idea of children... Or your partner being a mirror to you is something that is incredibly important. I had dinner the other night with a gentleman, and he said the turning point for him was when his son, who was ten at the time, turned to him and said, "Daddy, why don't you smile anymore?" And it broke his heart. It broke him. It just broke him in two. And I deal with a lot of people on the inverse side of that, who are in midlife, uh, you know, peak responsibilities, living in a very, very competitive place like Manhattan with high cost structures. Sometimes due to their own fault, sometimes not. And they come to me. And this is interesting to me because the second half of life is sort of the time when people should be maximally exploratory when trying to find another path. It's a time when you need to be a little bit more spiritual and a little bit a little bit more adventurous, I guess.
1: And possibly also vulnerable. You know, you talk about that in your blog of vulnerability is one of those building blocks that's required for vitality. That's exactly what I
0: was going to say. So Carl Jung has this line, which probably devastates me harder than almost any quote I've ever heard, which is, there's no greater burden a child can bear than the unlived life of the parent. And you see this a lot in every kind of soccer field you go to and every place you look in the professional world. And you see these guys that are like, I need to hold on because my kids want that extra bedroom, right? And you just think about the idea of if you tell them, you know, listen, you need to downsize, they'll just think of themselves as unhappier in a smaller place. But if you say to people, you know, listen, I guarantee you'll come alive and your children will be able to see you come alive again. that I think is something that the people don't think that that's available to them later in life. And that is nothing short of a tragedy, but your point on vulnerability is a well-taken one. I think This sounds like a strange thing to say, but I think often it is difficult for men in particular to connect with their children because of the degree of vulnerability that it requires, to feel the pain of the child when the child is in pain. That was certainly my experience, and I think that was a very big contributing factor in my own personal crisis, that it allowed me to acquire a sensitivity that as a profoundly kind of disconnected British, you know, emotionally abstracted person didn't have pre-crisis, and I'm much more in touch with the world afterwards, but not necessarily stronger. I would say probably conventionally weaker.
1: Well, I would submit you're stronger. I mean, I can tell. Our listeners can tell. You've come out of this pandemic better, not worse, not bitter. You've really used the time. And that's one of the things that I've talked with so many people about, Tom, is it was a pandemic. And- I see so many people have come out of it better and I see people who just still have not come out of it. Like it's still paralyzing and I have so much compassion for people in that situation because we all experienced COVID differently. Some of us lost loved ones. Some of us were hospitalized. Some of us couldn't sleep for 10 nights in a row without being in a fetal position in the shower, speaking from personal experience on that one, but- you know, we all experienced it differently. Some small business owners have lost their company now and other businesses thrived because they were in the right industries. And I guess that's a question that I have for you on behalf of our listeners is, what would you submit with everything you've been studying and learning and talking about? What would you submit are some of those key difference makers for the people that ultimately are coming out of this crazy time period of life in this, you know, COVID era, actually coming out of it better.
0: Mm. I think we have a little bit of a misunderstanding in our culture that we have all these practices to give, for one of a less annoying term, our unconscious mind a space to interject in our lives. Our unconscious mind is is typically nonverbal. It communicates through sensation, through emotion. And often when we do things like mindfulness practices, people assume that it's going to make them more productive, right? I'm going to do my 20 minutes of whatever app I'm going to do, and it's going to make me a better stockbroker. Sometimes it will rip your life apart, right? Like the moment you crack the door open, there might be a voice that says, you know, Tom, you've been going in the wrong direction for 10 years. And I think a lot of people don't really understand that that's kind of a feature, not a bug of a lot of these practices. You know, if you're if you're doing yoga or you have some embodiment practice or prayer, whatever it is, and you start getting this nagging feeling, because it is a feeling, it's very rarely a voice that says, you're going the wrong way. And I think what happened in COVID is a lot of people had silence and they got put in a room with their demons. And a lot of the times only one of them came out and it wasn't always the right winner. And when faced with that silence, you... You have a choice as to whether you pursue that which is truly interesting to you. And that's not an easy thing to do. First, to know it and then to have the courage to pursue it. It sounds, you know, sunshine and rainbows, but it was something that nearly tore me apart. And I think you're seeing that conflict now. Um, So when I talk to people, I've become, you know, very focused on. On finding practices that can help give voice to that part of ourselves that's nagging, you know, whether it's pulling together resonant quotes, whether it's cultivating these kind of boundary periods, whether it's between sleep or waking, or you know, cold water exposure or any of these kind of productivity cliches, they're all they're all designed to do something that perhaps we have neglected. And once that we give that voice a little bit more attention. For one of a better term, we open up the possibility that we can move in a new way. It's just moving in that way often requires quite significant sacrifices because otherwise they wouldn't be difficult, right?
1: Absolutely. You know, Tom, I appreciate one of the warnings you've given to our listeners is that when you start to do this type of work, it's not always sunshine and rainbows. In fact, I would submit some of the hardest experiences in my life are when I have had to really actually examine inward and figure out what is it that's nagging? What is it that's saying this isn't the right place to work? What is it that's saying I'm not showing up for my children the way that I want to, or I'm not being the husband that I want to be? That's hard work. And as you said, once you crack that open, there's no turning back if you want to actually deal with it. Mm. But I think what you're saying to our listeners and what I'm saying for sure is it's also the most important work we've ever done in our lives.
0: Yeah. So I think for a lot of guys, it's midlife, right? And there will be something that's holding you in. Otherwise, you wouldn't be stuck, right? Like if you're stuck, you're stuck for a reason. And if you knew the reason, you wouldn't be stuck, right? So it's kind of like, oh, well, if it was obvious what I needed to change, I would just change it. So often the level of introspection required is really high at this stage of life. And often it's the single thing that you least want to address, which is the thing that you have to address, because that's the thing that has been obstructing your growth for the longest. Whether it's your attitude towards money, whether it's the your attitude towards your achievements in life, whether it's a lack of self-esteem that you've been filling with lots of other, you know, objective benefits in your life whether it's titles or gadgets or you know something that looks good so yeah i'm very 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 sympathetic to the idea that this becomes a knife fight the biggest problem i think with our society particularly in the west is that we don't have very many role models of people that have made this transition well and we have no support particularly for people of means in midlife, as I said, I you know I worked for a recruiter for a while, and they said, you know, if, listen, if you've got more than sixteen years of experience in one field, you're considered toxic by the recruitment industry when it comes to moving to another, which is brutal, right? Like, I was like, I'm I'm coming up to forty, I'm a smart guy, I'm I've got to be better than a graduate at, at things, and you just get turned down. I got turned down repeatedly in favor of graduates, right? And I didn't even know what skill set to acquire, you know, like, do you learn to code and make yourself fungible with? People in Bangladesh at a hundredth of your cost base, right? Like, how do you know what to do? And why is no one telling anyone? So, not only do you get trapped by your own neuroses and your own ego, you also end up in this incredibly overwhelming information environment where all the money in the world doesn't really help you. And in fact, all the money in the world may hurt you because of how much you have to give up to try something else.
1: That's so powerful. Tom, this has just been incredible. I appreciate your vulnerability and willing to share with our listeners, you know, the difficult work you had to do to get to this place and now to see you actually being able to use that experience in finance. As you know, this unique gifting is just so incredible for me to have a sideline view of. I can't wait to continue to watch it. And this actually moves us into my favorite part of our show where I get to ask two questions. The first is the question everybody wants to know. And really, it's the question that I want to know, but I think our listeners will appreciate it. And so my question today for you is, you know, in your blog, The Attention Span, You have actually done something pretty powerful and said, hey, I'm going to take some of my best of the best concepts and I'm going to put them into one piece. And it's called 21 Useful Ideas, One Big One. So I want to ask today, what is the big one? What is the big idea? Oh, I think it's the biggest idea.
0: Unfortunately, it's reasonably hard to articulate, but I'll do it. I'll try my best. The best framing I've ever encountered, in fact, the best book I've ever read, is a relatively recent one by a guy called Dr. Ian McDilchrist. And he's this phenomenal Scottish polymath in both arts and sciences. And he wrote a book at the end of last year called The Matter with Things that I am evangelical about getting people to read, despite the fact that it's 1,400 pages long. And So that immediately disconnects half of the audience, which is a shame, because it really is by far the best thing I've ever read. And the long and short of it, which is impossible given us 1400 pages is that basically, as a, an expert on the brain, he's identified an imbalance that we have, where our egoic left hemisphere has overtaken our nonverbal right. But our nonverbal right is effectively superior at almost every kind of thinking and also has a much finer appreciation of our place in the world and a more harmonious relationship to our place in the world. It is associated with every spiritual tradition that we've heard for the last you know, 10,000 years. So his whole thesis is that we need to find a way of inverting the balance. And part of that is what I talk about, which is that your exploratory attention is controlled by the nonverbal mute right hemisphere. So part of the way that you address this balance and your direction in life, you know, narrow egoic goals get set by the left hemisphere. If you want to lose five pounds, eat this very easy to do. Well, not very easy to do in my case, but very easy to decide, right? Whereas like, how do I determine my direction in life? Very, very difficult and needs to be done much more subtly with this kind of very, very somatic felt sense. But once we start to operate in harmony with the world, the bit where I'm going to sound a bit crazy town is that the world starts signaling back to us. That our flourishing just increases, the richness of our life increases, there are more coincidences in our life, that we experience a greater sense of flow. We just simply feel more at home in the world. And I notice if you want to fry the brain of almost anyone, you start attributing intelligence to the outside world, whatever you want to call it, right? And I don't prefer not to give it a, a word, but certainly the closest I've come as a philosophy is the Chinese Taoists as I said earlier, just seemed to work this all out a couple of thousand years ago, and contemporary science and chaos theory is now only working out that they had it, that there is this flow of life that you can get closer and closer to. And there are ways you can get yourself more and more attuned to it. And the closer you get to it, the more guidance you get from it, and the better you get at co-creating with it in this very positive flow. It's you know synthesizing ideas. And I've noticed that in my work, the more I try and create from that place, the better things happen to me, you know, I, not necessarily financially, but the more wonderful people I meet, like you, and the more wonderful gifts I get given from the world around me.
1: Absolutely, you know, and from a Christian worldview, the way I often hear that described is this idea of you know really operating in your God-giving calling. It's all about that same concept and. Tom, I appreciate it so much, and you kind of helped me understand. We just brought it full circle back to the curiosity sherpa of, "I get it. Part of your most important role now is to help these highly, highly successful people actually unlock now more of that kind of dormant part of their brain that has so much more to offer. And yet, if they're not intentional about pushing into that, then it doesn't just happen by accident. People have to actually do this work. They have to go through the knife fight. And as that Sherpa, you're really helping inspire them and encourage them to step into that knife fight so that they can move on to just an incredibly bigger and better version of what's available for them.
0: I mean, I think if you put stuff that people love in front of them and show them little fun little rabbit holes to run down. They'll spend their time well. And if they spend their time well, it will, it will move their life in a positive direction. But it's so difficult. You know, the reason why Taoism talks in like paradoxes is because you have to try not to try. Right. If you sit, if you sit there for 20 minutes being like, what do I love? What do I love? What do I love? You'll end up back where I was, which is what's meaningful, what's meaningful, what's meaningful. So it has to be this very directed, undirected move. So what I will do is I will sit for like three months and not read a book and doom scroll on Twitter and just waste my life. And then suddenly someone who I trust, like you, will come and be like, dude, you've got to read this book. And for whatever reason, it will just click and resonate. And I will read that book. You know, When Ian McGill Chris published his book, I was three hours a day for five weeks because as I told you, I have a very patient wife because I was going to interview him in December and I needed to read the book before I interviewed him. So I'm maniacally focused when I find something interesting. You know, between those times, I have to be very, very sensitive to the ebb and flow of my own attention, but it is kind of a paradoxical situation, which, you know, nobody said they knew this was going to be easy.
1: I love it. Well, that takes us to our final question, which is, I know some of our listeners listening in, in fact, I hope all of them can kind of resonate with this aspect of, yeah, there's been some stuff that it's probably the most important stuff in my life. And I just don't want to push into it because I know it's going to be hard. Maybe they're thinking, I don't like where my marriage is at today, or I don't like the father that I'm being, or I'm in a role where I don't feel like I'm contributing anything meaningful. And there's some work to do. And so often we let the default just be what we continue to operate on. And the status quo is the easiest but it's hardly ever the best. And so I appreciate you coming on today to inspire everyone to push into that, but you don't just do this one time on our podcast. I mean, you do this day in and day out. And so if we have listeners that want to connect up with your content and really be inspired to keep pushing into these things, what is the best way for them to get in a regular flow of your content?
0: Sure. I mean, from a very straightforward perspective. I write at uh, the kcpgroup.com and uh, in the insight section, you can pop an email in and you'll get my, uh, my crazed ramblings twice a month. I organize conference calls with the most interesting people I can find. So we had Dr. McGilchrist in December. And if your listeners know someone who, who you think really resonates with this content, reach out to me and I'll do the same with them. I'm also on Twitter, probably more than my wife and child would want and I will respond to all DMs. I am not, sadly, a mental health professional, but what I am good at is telling people what mistakes not to make because I made all of them. And a lot of people reach out during sort of life transitions so I can tell them what not to do. And that's sort of the way I sacrifice my time for other people, which is sort of what I can do to put a little bit of good back into the world. You know, I ran into um, this excellent... Financial author called William Green, who is um, like an older, better version of me. He writes on this lovely mix of the world's best investors and spirituality. And he described his aim in life as being a clean pipe, which was the idea that you let life flow through you, that so gets between you and you know, paying full attention to your kids, and full attention to your wife, and making the right decisions at the moment. And I guess following on from him, I just try and be a clean pipe.
1: Well, I love it. What a great way to wrap up. So listeners, we will put a link to Tom's Twitter feed in our show notes, whether you listen to Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, we'll put that in our show notes. We'll put a link to the insights section for thekcpgroup.com. And again, as Tom mentioned, you can sign up right there to get his twice a month attention span blog. I can tell you firsthand, it's fantastic. So absolutely get out there and sign up. And Tom, thank you again so much for being with us here today on Beyond the Ordinary.
0: Very, very grateful. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Ordinary. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth and produced by Reverb. If you like this show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Mammoth and Beyond the Ordinary, visit us at mammoth.vc.